If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From Cleopatra to Beyonce, women have used sexuality to increase their power and influence. This week, our speakers delve into sex, power and influence. But many feminists warn that it is undermining to be seen as a sex object and some in the Me Too movement propose culture should banish such behaviour. So, is sexuality a vehicle for power or for subservience? Should women use sexuality to conquer the world or would it be more empowering to move away from it? Taking this on, we have radical lesbian feminist, researcher and author of Antiporn, The Resurgence of Antipornography Feminism, Julia Long. She's joined by journalist, writer and former editor of the erotic magazine, The Erotic Review, Rowan Pelling. And finally, founder of the award-winning blog, Miss Afropolitan, and author of Sensuous Knowledge, a black feminist approach for everyone, Mina Salami. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode on sex, power and influence, so please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Join in the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at AI underscore TV and check out our website for the latest updates from Philosophy for Our Times at www.iai.tv. Back now to Miriam Francois, who hosts this week's episode. So, is sexuality a vehicle for power or a guarantee of subservience? Mina. Okay, um, so I think we have two big problems when it comes to the narrative of sexuality. And the first is that we think of sexuality in uh, heteronormative terms. So we uh, automatically assume that we're speaking about women and men when we're speaking about sexuality. And secondly, within this framework of heteronormativity, we assign very rigid and narrow roles to women and men. So we tend to see um, sexual relationships as with men as the hunter and women as prey. Uh, so technically, we think of sexuality as, as something that men want and something that women give to men who deserve <laughs> to receive sex from women. Simultaneously, we think about power in actually in really, interestingly enough, similar terms. So the most um, common idea of power that we have, perhaps, I would argue, um, anyway, is by uh, Robert Dahl, who said that power is the 
ability of A to get B to do something that B would normally not do. So there's a, a, an interesting and direct parallel to this framing of sexuality between women and men that is heteronormative and our idea of power. Um, and so what I would respond to the question is that if a woman is expressing her sexuality um, in a public space, in public fora, um, she's either, or she, she could either be sort of um, a questioning and contributing to this same narrative of sexuality and of power, or she could be challenging it. And I thought about um, an example that is really fitting to this discussion, which was, um, I think it took place in 2011, 2012 in Germany, where um, a, a, a public intellectual uh, and a writer called Charlotte Roche, who some of you might know, um, she proposed to the then chancellor of Germany, uh, whose name escapes me right now, um, Christian Wolff that she would um, have sex with him if he blocked nuclear stations development in Germany. And this is such an interesting ex example because in some regard, uh, Charlotte Roche is, she's challenging our ideas of female sexuality and of power because she's being kind of sassy and subversive and she's challenging the ideas of modesty and ladylike behavior. Um, but at the same time, she's also very much contributing to the narrative that sexual expression and sex at large is something that men want and that women can use um, in order to acquire power. She's also contributing to the idea, or was also contributing to the idea that um, this, whatever a woman achieves in society, whether she's... Um, you know, a public intellectual as Charlotte was, or if she comes up with a cure for, for illness or whatever she might do, it is nevertheless her sexuality that she can use to create change. Thank you very much. Julia. Okay. Hi, afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, so I think what I'm going to say probably picks up on some of the things that you were talking about there, Minna. Um, I think before we can answer the question that's been posed, we really have to think about what we mean by this word sexuality. You know, it's, a, it's an abstract noun. It probably we all interpret it maybe in, in different ways. And um, I think it's useful to actually have a look around at the world and see how this thing that we call sexuality is constructed. What are the kind of institutions, what are the kind of norms, what are the kind of expectations um, that, are, that are used uh, to, in the construction of, of sexuality and who sets the terms of those things. And so what I'm gonna argue is that within male dominated societies, it's actually men as a class, no matter about what, you know, individual variations, it's men as a class who set those terms in ways that I think Minna has already started um, to talk about. So, so you might be aware that one of the main, one of the uh, most visited uh, porn sites called uh, Pornhub, um, they now produce an annual report. And I think that's a very useful thing to look at. It's very telling in terms of some of the norms of sexuality that are constructed. Now, what we know from content analysis is that um, around 90%, the overwhelming majority of pornography, and I'm sure we know this anyway, um, involves violence and aggression, and overwhelmingly that violence and aggression is, is directed at 
women. Um, so what we've got, I would say, is a very normalised and very industrialised and very, very accessible form of violence against women that is you know, available at a couple of, of clicks of a mouse. The most searched terms in terms of... Um, uh, Pornhub report for last year was the first, the most such terms was, the first of all was lesbian, which as a lesbian myself, I really, um, I don't quite know what words I can use to express how I feel about the fact that something that is visited by all these men is like my sexuality is constructed um, in ways that are, I think, extremely misogynistic and very much anti-lesbian. Um, to commodify something that has nothing to do with men, but it is turned into a commodity for men to try, I would say very much, to try and control women who they know have no sexual interest in them whatsoever. So I think that's very telling. And that term lesbian is quite consistently the most searched for um, uh, uh, term on, on the site. In terms of the uh, norms of sexuality, we also see um, other aspects of the sex industry becoming very normalised through things like webcams, lap dancing. Um, there's a, quite a phenomenon now amongst um, female undergraduates of this whole phenomenon of sugar daddies, of older men. Uh, so I would see that definitely as some kind of form of prostitution. Older men who are then um, giving money to young women who are... Um, you know, having to uh, pay for their own you know, university fees and then expecting some kind of, um, you know, ownership of them or access to them um, in response. Um, obviously, we've got a global pandemic of sexual violence, so I'm not going to go into the statistics for that. And also, I mean, one of the, one of the areas that we're seeing more of lately is I work on the, um, the UK Femicide Census, which is, um, which is a project where we document women killed by men in this country year on year and we collect information and uh, uh, developing a database on all this you know really uh, terrible and distressing um, information and one of the things that we've seen increasingly over the last few years is that now we've got 53 women killed by men in this country who use as a defense that they claim that they that the women were willingly and consensually participating in rough sex or what's called you know sometimes sadomasochistic or BDSM practices. I haven't got time really to go into that, but I think you know this is something that we're certainly seeing in the work that I'm doing, um, and I think we've seen this normalisation of sadomasochistic practices, and now we're seeing men using this as a defence and sometimes very successfully then only getting a manslaughter conviction rather than what I would see would. Be clearly um, should have been a murder conviction. But through the decades-long uh, feminist scholarship in this area, I, I can only agree with the conclusion by, of uh, legal scholar Catherine McKinnon, who concluded that sexuality is to feminism what work and labour is to Marxism. She sees sexuality as a central uh, instrument of women's oppression. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the things I'd like to start by saying is that I do see the sort of diversion into porn as a bit of a red herring because I, my understanding of this debate is we're talking about female agency and your own agency to exercise sexuality or not. Um, and clearly, when you look at pornography, a, a large amount of it is about someone else being in control of that sexuality. And it seems to me the important question we need to ask is about women's own agency over their sexuality and indeed, you know, to some extent men's, because men are not being questioned about this. We're not, we're not talking about whether Justin Trudeau is less of a leader because he's sexy, about whether 
Putin should take his shirt off, about whether Beau Brummel in the 18th century should be wearing tight breeches. So we, we have this very different set of standards, I think, that we bring to women. And historically, women have been punished and constrained for expressing their sexuality. And this very much continues at the minute. And I think when you look at domestic violence, a lot of that control is men seeking to control women's expression of their sexuality. So I really think we've got to, and I do agree that what we've got to look at is what we mean by sexuality. And I think one of the problems when we constantly get diverted into pornography is that for me, a lot of that, not all of it, and I think there is some good pornography. I don't really care to make a big distinction between erotica and pornography. I think there's good creative material and terrible material, and a lot of it is terrible. But when you look at what sexuality really is to me, it's really quite hard. It's an ineffable force. We feel it in other people. But it's not this ersatz performative thing that we see in pornography. Sexuality in people, it seems to me like trying to eradicate that will say you can't use it. It's like changing your eye color because sexuality is so much part of some people's personality. Even if your sexuality, in fact, in a way is a bit asexual, we react to people in these ways. Everyone has a different expression of sexuality. But we're behaving as if we know what it is, that it is this kind of performative, and I'm getting the impression, sort of breasts out, high heels, and I don't see it like that. And for me, some of the people whose sexuality has interestingly been most obvious, operating on a completely different level, and I don't see it as unscrupulous, it's just part of their personality, that you couldn't divorce their sexuality from who, who they are. So I see at the heart of this sex education that people should not be so terrified of sexuality. It seems to be always trying to erase it or wrap it up or make it neat and tidy. And in fact, I would like to free sexuality for those who wish it to be freer. I would like it to be an expression of your inner desires. And our desires are tricky because for most people to be their authentic self in all sorts of ways as an adult takes a long time. We run away from our desires. They're tricky, they're peer approved. And I think everything we see in consumerist sex and pornography, the problem there again, is that very often it's about society sort of approving an ersatz version of sexuality. But what really interests me is, why are we kind of asking this question? We don't ask it of men. We all know men in positions of power who part of their power comes from a certain sort of attractiveness they have around them. And yet we're always seeking to troll this in women to kind of say, that is inappropriate. And it feels to be just really, really retrogressive in this day and age. If we are trying to say to women, this is unseemly, what you're doing is unseemly. I mean, and, and it's also schizophrenic as a kind of culture because we have you know, people going on slut walks where they say, right, I'm gonna walk dressed as I want because we all know, none of us would disagree, that however a woman is dressed, it is her right to expect to be respected and not attacked, even if she's just walking down the street in a bra and hot pants. And we're saying that, and I think we would all believe that this is true. And yet, on the other hand, we're saying, but there is a sexuality that is wrong. You should not express yourself that way. I don't like that because that looks wrong on a billboard. And I, I actually think if you, let, if you let the genuine expression of sexuality be taught to children in school, actually, it's something Jess Phillips has been talk, talking about quite recently, pleasure in sex, that you're not even allowed to talk about women's sexuality in school as, you know, being deserving of pleasure. I would just like to see things being less curtailed and opened up, and also women being held to the same standards as men. And if we are, then we shouldn't have this debate that's constantly women saying, 
you know, how should women be? You shouldn't be dressed like that. You shouldn't be doing like that. You shouldn't be able to operate in a porn movie. And in my experience of the debates around porn, no one's really having a go at the gay men in porn, you know, especially if it's, you know, particularly consensual, someone like Bruce LaBruce making a particular form of gay porn movie. No one's upset about it. So I'd like to see a more level playing field. Thank you very much. So um, thank you all. So based on those uh, opening pitches, I really wanted to um, open up the conversation. So is it wrong to use sexuality and appearance for success? That's the first part of this conversation. And when we enter into it, there are a couple of things I I jotted down when I was listening to to all three of you. And one of them is um, coming off what you were saying, Roland, um, is the public-private distinction. Is there uh, a distinction between, for example, celebrating sexuality as some cultures might within the private sphere, but perhaps saying, actually maybe that sexuality, which is so fantastic in the private domain, can take on a different significance when we use it in the public domain. Another question I have is about what I feel is maybe the sacralization of choice in our uh, culture currently. So it's the idea that whatever a woman chooses to do is um, you know, empowering to her. Is there uh, perhaps any kind of uh, wider obligation when, when it comes to our behavior and its impact on others? And the third, I suppose, is, is as a part of the millennial generation of, of the Instagrammers. Um, uh, you know, if, if any of us uh, open our Instagrams, we're basically bombarded with images of copycats of, of Kylie Jenner or Kim Kardashian, depending on what generation you're coming at this from. So I'm just wondering what you what you make yeah. of these points. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm not. The, the way the question's phrased, I think, is a bit of a problem because I don't think any of us um, want to say that. I, you know, I want to talk about women here. Um, I don't. I don't think any of us will want to say, "Oh, it's wrong to do X, Y, and Z." I mean, I will be coming at it, and I think this is probably where maybe I'm coming from a different perspective to Rowan, because I think we can't talk about authentic sexuality or genuine sexuality or this individual thing that we all, as if it's some sort of like kernel that we have inside that is untouched by norms of society. Uh, That's why I wanted to talk about some of these structures and um, institutions, if we can call them that, that do undoubtedly shape sexuality. You know, sexual practice changes over time, over um, uh, geographically, and it changes historically. And we can definitely see the influence of um, this much more available and accessible pornography in terms of things like, um, you know, increasing prevalence of anal sex and some of the things that certainly when I was researching my book that young women were telling me that there was quite expected. So, you know, we can't talk about our individuality aside from that. Um, and so in terms of social media, I think it's become probably some of the, you know, I mean, is that obviously that much younger than me, you might want to say something about it yourself. But I think it has become um, a, a, the kind of whole image-based culture that we live in now, I think is something that is very, very oppressive to young women. Um, and sure, individual women such as Kim Kardashian, you know, some of these kind of, you know, women who are very, you know, successful at the whole celebrity culture can gain certain material benefits. They can gain gain economically. They can gain in terms of kind of social, I don't know, kudos and status and things like that. But none of that is, I would say, none of that is liberation. All of that is working within the confines of the structure. And women do not set the terms because women don't have social and economic power as a class. We don't set the terms of those structures. And for me, I'm far more interested in how we transform those cultures rather than what kind of, you know, what crumbs some of us can get within it. 
Great, thank you. Um, I'm wondering, Rowan, if you want to come back on some of those points. Well, yeah, I, obviously, I don't think anyone's going to dispute. I, I mean, I, I've got children, you know, every single day I observe the effect that social media has on their expectations of how they should look for girls and for boys. I mean, there's a really weird thing now where for boys, they kind of wander out. You know, I've got 11 and 15-year-old. I'm always finding them with their blooming shirts off, you know, walking around like they're on Love Island, you know, <laughs> worrying about whether they've got pecs. So, you know, it's not great that this kind of internet disease is spreading to men as well. Um, but I would still say that this, for me, is performative and ersatz, and that the, the burden on education and everyone is to sort of educate young people that this is a kind of fake sexuality. And I understand, I think we've always, to some extent, taken refuge in that in kind of slightly banal, safe pop groups that you like when you're a teenager that are expressing sexuality in a way that you realize when you're older, that's not what sexuality is. And I actually, and I just think freeing yourself to express your sexuality in many different ways, and for that may not, and I think absolutely they should not be dictated to us by popular culture, by Instagram, by the Kardashians. But I think there'll always be someone like the Kardashians. There's always some money to be made by kind of sequestering a bit of the market. And, and it's hard, I think, to say just how much they have agency or are being controlled by something else. But for me, it's not sexuality. Um, Can I just check you? So you don't think the Kardashians are selling sex? I don't think they are. No, I think it's totally consumer thing. I don't think it is sex. I don't recognise it. It doesn't have the force of sex about it. When you, you know, the life force of sex, which is the most overwhelming thing most of us will feel, you know, if you if you have that kind of enormous sort of erotic passion at some time, it's not what the Kardashians do. It's it's a, it's an airbrushed view of something. It's but, not sexuality. But Rowan, the but what the Kardashians obviously they just like kind of a you know symbol or what they what they re what they represent is the way that female sexuality is endlessly constructed in the culture. Like we can go into any supermarket or look online at social media, and that is how it's constructed. Now, I agree with you. It certainly isn't the version of sexuality that I think is you know, particularly uh, good for women at all. And I think it's probably no coincidence when, when you're talking about Jeanette Winterson, the fact that she's lesbian, the fact that she's rejected all of those trappings, I think. Um, and certainly my experience of being in women-only space as being a lesbian feminist, I feel far more free than I've you know, felt within more kind of heterosexual spaces because I think there's such a relationship between objectification of women and the kind of uh, heteronormativity that Minna was talking about. But at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that these things exist. Um, I would like to see much more kind of questioning and rejection of those. But I don't think schools are the only way to do it. I think schools are a bit of a spitting in the wind in terms of the, the force of the culture. I don't know, Minna. Yeah, um, yeah, just to respond to a few things. So I'm in my 40s, so I don't think I can speak about the, the sort of social okay. media <laughs> culture um, most appropriately. But one of the things that I like to say is that I, I think we actually need to eroticize society. So I don't feel that we should be uh, desexualizing society and removing um, pornography per se or, our, or any kind of sexual connotation from whether it's social media or popular culture at large. And the reason I use the word eroticize is because eros is something that is connected to, um, to love, to intimacy, to connection, to creativity, and to a different kind of power, which I think, um, and it's a concept that I think that women 
at large, um, maybe I'm generalizing, but it's something that women tend to have much more of a propensity to want to attach themselves to. The problem is that all of these kinds of expressions that are typically feminine um, are always diminished and undervalued and seen as somehow irrational or ridiculous. I, I mean, for me, not to be defensive because I'm a makeup wearer, but for example, that is one thing that is, you know, it's as if we can only look at it from the context, from a male prism and a culture where we celebrate male dominance and sort of eroticize female oppression. But actually, um, as an African woman, makeup also for me signifies a kind of uh, heritage and a lineage. So you had women in ancient Egypt already using um, coal pens, which for the men in the room is a kind of black eye pencil that you put around your, your eyes. And that was something that they used for spiritual purposes as well as for holistic and healing purposes. So I, I just think that what we really need to, to, to do if we want to get out of this bind of male oppression within the sexual space is to create and re-envision the language that we're using, um, to think of pleasure and eroticism, um, and to identify what we are actually criticizing in the male narrative of sexuality and heteronormativity and pornography. Um, also, because what we see in pornography is not only um, sexism and misogyny, but actually all types of power being bound into our sexuality, which is a part of our subconscious realm at large. Um, so pornography is not only misogynist, but it's also very racist. And what, what happens with mo most of the porn that you would access on Pornhub is that it is embedding in our subconscious the idea, uh, which is a very political one, that white male pleasure, as it has been constructed, is what we should all be seeking to satisfy, in a sense. Um, so yeah, I, I believe in the eroticization of society on, on feminist terms. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Yeah, and I really would love to, to pick up to that point um, for, with the panel because um, two, two things. One was um, the private-public distinction, which um, I wanted to pick up on something you talked about because one of my friends whose um, mom is Sudanese, we went round to her house one evening. She doesn't wear any makeup during the day. And I saw her putting on like a full face of makeup. It was like, whatever, 9 p.m. And I was like, what? What, you going out? <laughs> you going to party or something? And she was like, Oh no, no, we we uh, no makeup for the outside world. I do this for you know the bedroom, and I was like, 
oh, this is an interesting concept that you, you, know, you don't feel the need to play up that side of your sexuality in the public sphere, but actually in the private sphere where it matters to you and to your partner, that's something you exercise. I thought that brings an interesting kind of public-private dimension, which exists within other cultures, perhaps less so in this one, particularly for the Instagram generation where nothing's private anymore. But I, I wanted to bring in the beauty bias to this conversation, because I do wonder whether when we talk about playing up sexuality or um, sort of using our sexuality to get ahead, are, is there not a risk of essentially reinforcing um, beauty standards which in patriarchal contexts are set by men and then creating a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis our sisters who maybe don't inherently conform to those beauty standards or don't feel that they should have to conform to those beauty standards. And so I'm just wondering, maybe Rowan, if you want to come back. Yeah, I mean, I just I just find all this a bit sort of bonkers because, you know, I might say that... I just don't think we should even be worrying about who's wearing makeup or not or why in this age. It just, it just seems so sort of beside the point. And, and one of the interesting things is that we again we don't really have this argument when you know it's you know RuPaul's Drag Race or you know or a trans woman who maybe is embraced. Maybe a lot of the things that the kind of woman they want to be is, you know, represents some sort of idea of 1950s glamour or something. It seems to me everyone has that choice, whatever your gender or sexuality, to be performative about it, which is slightly different than sexuality. And I, I know I always dress like a circus pony. And um, it's not, you know, to me, it's very difficult because, because I understand the thinking about sex and sexuality all the time, that this is rather circusy, and it's not at all the kind of actual approved idea of a sexy woman is either the sort of cartoony one with perhaps disgust over much, or you know, it's it's something quite quite subtle. I think it's uh, someone in a form-fitting tight black short dress and high heels. And what are we going to do? We can say you can't wear high heels. They're kind of you know debasing society. We're, we're not bringing these standards into what men think or do, and I just don't want this to be the relevant thing. In, in professional forums, if you're going to be a surgeon, if you're going to be a teacher, you know you're going to have to dress appropriately. You're not going to go in absolutely, you know, with cleavage down here, plastered up. So, so you know, there is a certain, certain environments where things are being imposed. And so anyway, if you're a barrister, you have to dress for court. You can't dress in a different way. So, so these things are just individual choices. For, I, 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 it seems to me so just different, the actual central thing of are we are we trying to curb sexuality or is sexuality something that is as much part and parcel of what we can use in our life as intelligence and height or whatever it is you've been given. I mean, yeah, people get different gifts. But, you know, I'm crap at sport. I've learned to live with that. I, you know, never made a sports team in my entire life. Um, sure. I think, um, can I come in there? Um, you know, I think, I think for me, part of the problem of the, there's a bit of a problem with this debate, which is that the way the questions are framed, it all kind of comes down to whether you agree with someone's choice or it's all, you know, put in terms of choice and things like that. And should we even be arguing about this? Um, I think things like, you know, the presentation of the body, beauty practices, feminization, then these are not arbitrary things. These are things that are very consistently, um, you know, we can just like look around this room and we can see who's been 
been socialised into femininity and socialised into masculinity. So we might say that, oh, well, there's a difference between sex and gender, but actually most, most people in um, sort of mainstream society act as though there is an inherent relationship between sex and gender because most women present in a feminised way and most men present in a masculinised way. And I think these things are really important. It's not just a matter of individual choice because um, I must say, give a bit of a plug, um, Sheila Je Professor Sheila Jeffries wrote a brilliant book called Beauty and Misogyny in which she talks about the way in which beauty practices such as makeup, cosmetic surgery, high heels, all the rest of it, how that functions within patriarchal society. And it's to set up an inherent, dif uh, a perceived difference between women and men because all the ones who are doing all the kind of heels and the makeup and the long hair and all the rest of it and other, you know, kind of very uh, harmful things sometimes in terms of fillers and plastic surgery and all the rest of it, um, we can perceive that these are, um, these as a group are constructed as the object of that society because these are the, um, these are the group who are, you know, to be looked at, who are to, um, to be on, on display in the kind of thing that you were talking about, Rowan. Whereas men often wear clothing that is much more free, much more comfortable, that doesn't involve, even though now men are increasingly becoming you know, more commodified in certain ways, we know that still nine out of 10 um, people under going uh, cosmetic surgery in this country are women. So it's, you know, it's still very, very, um, very biased in that way. And what Sheila Jeffries says is that we don't just use these things to um, signify difference. They also signify deference, along with the other expectations around femininity, which is to do with kind of posture and gait and the, you know, how loudly we speak. You know, and there are all these kinds of social strictures that as soon as a woman starts to raise her voice, then she's like shrill or strident. And it is very much to do, to go right back to what you were saying at the beginning, Minna, um, it's to do with um, power and, and maintaining power relations. So I think the fact that, you know, we see, you know, such a massive industry in terms of pornography, but also in terms of cosmetics, in terms of cosmetic surgery, in terms of, of fashion, high heels, all of these things, these are not arbitrary things. And so, I, you know, you can say, oh, it doesn't really matter. But then at the same time say, oh, but we have to have this genuine sexuality. I think what, for me, what we used to do years ago is for women to, and, you know, for men as well, hopefully men are willing, willing to do this, is to sit around and talk about these things and do what used to be called consciousness raising, to actually think about what do we think, not about what is this woman doing, is that right or wrong, do I want to wag my finger at her? And obviously, lesbian feminists myself have got virtually, you know, have got no power in the world to control what Kim Kardashian does. It's completely the other way around. There's been far more pressure put on me to wax my legs for years to, when I was a teenager to have electrolysis because I was being bullied at that point, as, are, as, as any woman who's got, you know, it's constructed that body hair on a woman is like some terrible thing. So the pressure is working, it's totally working the other way. And I think it's, really, it's been very, very important for me to reject those things. And I experience my body now in a far more liberated way than I ever did then, because I experience myself as a human subject rather than a, a, an object. And I think these are the conversations that we need to be having. What is the function of makeup in our society? What is the function of high heels? What is the function of these things? What do they achieve? And I think as long as you've got a society where women are worried about how they look, worried about um, you know, whether he's going to like this, that, or the other that I do in bed, or what are his demands around that. As long as you've got women worried about that, we're not thinking about our liberation from any of it. Anyway, that was a bit of a problem. <laughs> 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 um, just, 
just to, to pick up on that, if, if I may, um, I, I always think it's interesting how um, when we look at other cultures, uh, we'll often uh, make a connection between patriarchy within a, within a particular culture and say uh, certain practices that relate to women like feet binding or certain items of clothing or certain types of tattooing or constraining clothing, even down to corseting within this own culture. But for whatever reason, that's not a connection that's made as automatically when we look at our own culture. I'm just wondering uh, what, what you think about that, Mina. Mm, um, I agree that it is something that we should look at in, in our own Western cultures. Um, I mean, the, the history between patriarchy and beauty ideals goes as far back at least to the, to the Bible, right, with the creation of Eve. And like, it's quite interesting to follow the, the trajectory of how Eve has been depicted throughout the centuries. You know, in John Milton's Paradise Lost, she's described as somebody with a slim waist and long flowing hair and fair skin. Um, and her posture is very feminine. And so an idea of beauty is being cemented already then. Um, we then see this in a lot of classic classical art, I can't remember the name of all of the, the artists, but there's many of the paintings that we see from like the, the 15th century onwards, they depict a very specific idea of feminine beauty, which is, it's almost, you know, an identical version of this Eve from the Bible, where we have a woman with a small waist, an hourglass figure, long flowing blonde hair, uh, fair skin, you know, these are very important attributes. And we see this still today. I mean, you know, when you look at uh, the Kim Kardashians, I don't want to repeat her name all the time, but even like someone like Beyonce, who is a woman of color, but she is embodying this kind of Western idea of beauty where, you know, the hourglass figure, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's an equally problematic narrative that goes along with beauty in the West, absolutely. And, but what we need to understand is that these are if we're speaking of beauty here, I think there's political beauty, um, which is beauty that is uh, shaped by a political agenda, in, in this case, patriarchy and, and white supremacy, um, when it comes to this particular depiction of beauty. Um, there's artificial beauty, which is beauty that is meant to encourage capitalism and consumption. And so it's, it's something that is trying to look like what beauty might actually be. And then I would say that there is ultimately what we might classify as genuine beauty. And for me, that is, um, I mean, this is a, perhaps a, a kind of philosoph philosophical perspective, but that's fitting since we're at a philo philosophy festival. Um, but it is beauty that is, um, that has to do with whatever is everlasting. So things that, um, that qualities and emotions and sentiments that are everlasting and that are things that humanity, wherever they found themselves in the world, appreciate. So what I find really important is with both with power, with sexuality, with beauty, all of these key themes that we're discussing is to not throw the baby out with the water kind of thing. So beauty is actually um, an incredibly important concept in our lives. It is something that can enrich our lives, if, but we need to think of it differently. Um, it's the same thing with sexuality. And the point I was making earlier is that for women, um, and you know, we get ridiculed whenever we say this, but women are really turned on by, I mean, I'm generalizing here, so you know, take no offense, but generally I know from my friendship circles, women like um, 
that which is erotic, that which is intimate, things that feel connected. And yet we, we don't seem to be able to connect that to any kind of powerful narrative. So what we need to understand ultimately is that the, 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 so long as we live in a patriarchy and in a society where male dominance is the rule, then anything that is to do with women's sexuality is part of that narrative. And so if we, if we were to sort of turn heteronormativity and the eroticization of women's oppression on its head, then we would, we would have to live in a completely different kind of society, right? Um, so I, I think basically we should embrace beauty, but redefine it, look at it cross-culturally and transnationally and historically, so uh, chronologically, and we should redefine sexuality and power. We have to do these things if we're going to change the, the norms. Thank you so much. Can I get a round of applause for the whole panel? Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Julia Long, Rowan Pelling, and Mina Salami. For more on today's topic, why not have a listen to our episode on the future of pornography with Brooke McNanty, Finn McKay, Rowan Pelling and Peter Tatchell, or our episode Power, Status and Sexuality, which reassesses the goals of feminism. Please do let us know what you think now you've listened to today's episode. Tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast and please do make sure you're subscribed on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. Tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.